1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC.
0: It's partly a novel about Antarctica and partly a novel about stroke and stroke recovery. And the way those two things connect made sense to me at the time. It's quite difficult to be your best self when you're in very difficult situations and when you're exhausted and you know, when you're confused and scared and all the rest of it. So, yeah, that all of that was really important to to try and make these real people. I'm always cautious in, in writing fiction about you know, trying to make any kind of point or you know, have any kind of agenda, but I was really struck and kind of upset really by seeing how stretched resources are
2: hello and welcome to on a good day with me elizabeth Callahan,
0: and me Julia
2: ajay coming up for you today we are delighted to have the award-winning author john mcgregor on the podcast and we're actually here with him right now at the
1: university of nottingham where he's a professor of creative writing john has written five books and two short stories and won two literature prizes this is fifth book Lean Fall Stand tells the story of an expedition technician on location in Antarctica who has a stroke. It then follows his rehabilitation with his wife, adjusting to the changes in her life as a result. I heard John speak about the book on a radio programme when it first came out and I was immediately interested in the subject matter, of course, of brain injury, and John, your connections to Cambridge, as that's where I'm from too. So, welcome to the show, and congratulations on your book.
0: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
1: We both so enjoyed the book, and lots of parts of the book resonated with both of us, didn't they, Elizabeth? Mm-hmm. And and we'll go into to that as we have our discussion today. Um, but first, maybe you could explain more about the book and what inspired you to write it.
0: So the books kind of set in Antarctica, and it's kind of presented as a novel about Antarctica, um, and it came from a writing residency I did many, many years ago, 2004, so nearly 20 years ago, where the Arts Council paid for, and the British Antarctic Survey paid for a couple of writers and artists each year to go down um, and see some of the work that the British Antarctic Survey were doing and i went on that on uh, uh, on the basis of saying and uh, you know i'll come back and write some fiction about it and really struggled when i got back to to write anything much kind of started a novel several times and and gave up and wrote other novels instead and eventually some years ago kind of came back to it and it you know, was adamant that this time it would be the novel about antarctica and it turned into a novel about stroke um for lots and lots of reasons which we can get into. So it's it's partly a novel about Antarctica and partly a novel about stroke and stroke recovery. And the way those two things connect made sense to me at the time.
1: I think they absolutely do in the book as well, the way that you weave both of those subjects together. And for me, one of the really strong and obvious themes in the book almost is about communication. And that's one of the threads that links the expedition and the stroke together for me.
0: Yeah. Is that for you as well? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And the way I came to stroke and thinking about stroke and particularly thinking about aphasia was thinking about why it was I was finding it so difficult to write about Antarctica and thinking about how language wasn't enough for me to kind of capture the experiences that I'd had when I was there and, and my sense of the landscape and thinking about the limitations of language and that kind of sent me down a rabbit hole of exploring language and language deficits and, and kind of eventually stumbled upon aphasia really because I'd never, as far as I knew, I'd never met anybody with aphasia, I didn't have any experience in my family or my life of people who'd, who'd had strokes. Um, didn't really know anything about it, but it, it really struck me as somebody who uses language, in, you know, in my work. Um, the the challenges of of suddenly having that taken away really really struck me, and that was that was that was how for me the two parts of the book came together.
2: That is so interesting, isn't it? So it was a communication aphasia, and then the stroke element yeah. drawn in from that. Um, I mean, you the descriptions that you give and the way that it's written, you can almost feel as though you did know somebody with a stroke who's had a stroke, and um, or you know been a carer yourself, or like what um, research did you do to really um, get into those subjects?
0: I mean, I did quite a lot of research and I think probably for this book more than most books I've written um, because I was really aware as soon as I started thinking, okay, I want to write about a character who has a stroke. I want to write about the impact of that on on his family. I want to write about the experience of of aphasia. um, I was very, very aware of that not being my story and not being you know, not having any kind of personal experience of that and wanting to make sure, therefore, that I at least got my facts right, you know, and, and had some accuracy about that experience. So I, I spoke to several kind of medical professionals. Um, I spent a couple of days on the stroke ward at the City Hospital here in Nottingham. Um, spent quite a lot of time with some speech and language therapists. Um, I did a lot of reading and a lot of, you know, this is a great time to be a novelist doing research because there's so much material, so much kind of personal material around in the shape of podcasts and YouTube videos and social media accounts. Um, And so I quite quickly kind of built up a a wealth of of people's own descriptions of, of their own experiences. And actually when you're writing a novel, it's very different from writing a non-fiction book. You, you don't have to do tons and tons of research. You just need to get a few key details and a few kind of, um I don't know, like little twists of, of language and vocabulary and, and, and kind of things that that tell a bigger picture. And once you start putting those together, in my experience, you you kind of get a grasp on on one person's situation. Because I'm not trying to write a book that covers what stroke is like for everybody. I'm trying to write a book that is what stroke was like for this one person and his wife and their family. And, and that's that's those are two really different things to attempt to do.
1: That's, that's really interesting because you're talking about writing about the unique experience. And I think one thing that we've definitely talked about in the podcast is that recognition that everyone's experience is unique both in the carer supporter role and in the stroke survivor and, you know, the impairments that they might be left with or or their recovery journey. So I think every experience is unique. And yet, I think there was so much in the book that resonated with both of us, that it was some of those details that really felt that enabled me to connect with the writing and um just one bit i was thinking about again this morning was actually where you described the main character doc in the hospital with the with the physios when he first stands up with the physio either side of him and his shaky legs as he stands up and that was such a powerful image because i was there when my husband had had the same support to stand up for the first time And he's he's six foot four, so there was sort of was, Oh goodness, you you know, we didn't know you were this tall, Hector. So you know, it's something that really sticks in my memory. And I Mm. think you do bring to life so many of those small details that actually are really common to to Mm. that experience for both of us.
2: Yeah, I mean, his wife Anna, when she gets that um, information that he's going to be coming home, it is that kind of shock and slight dread and I I really felt for that character because it just took me back to when my husband has had his date to come home and it is, you know, it's quite overwhelming and in um, the the character's case, you know, he hadn't actually been in hospital for that long either and I think actually some of the care and the hospital and the medical um, treatment he got you kind of bring in as well, kind of the community care as well, but you know, yeah, there, there were so, so many bits that resonated. Um, and I guess, particularly for us, because of our situation mm. with Anna, the wife, but also what's interesting as well. They're not the most likable characters. Was there a reasoning behind creating that and having this happen to those that family?
0: Yeah, I think I mean, that's part of, of my kind of the way I think about fiction is is the part of what what's involved in writing real characters or, or believable characters, you know, or whatever that means, is is to make sure they're complicated people and make sure they're kind of people with nuances and people with contradictions and and especially I think in in some writing about health or care or disability um, or injury. There can be a tendency to kind of gonna make up a word now, heroicize. <laughs> to make to make heroes of, of people who are recovering or, or the people who are caring for them. Um, in a very kind of simplistic way. And you know, I've, I've met people and they're not always nice all the time, you know, and I, and I and i that felt really important to me to be creating people who were complicated and not particularly likable and and, and Doc in particular, you know, is, is mostly a fairly unlikable man. And I think part of what I loved about bringing the novel to a close was was kind of getting him to a place where he's probably going to become slightly less unlikable <laughs> through his kind of acceptance of help and other people and, and, and the rest of it. But also that people in really, really difficult situations have limited capacity to kind of check themselves. And, and, and you know, it's quite difficult to be your best self when you're in very difficult situations and when you're exhausted and, you know, when you're confused and scared and all the rest of it. So yeah, that all of that was really important to, to try and make these real people.
2: Yeah, they definitely seemed it, didn't they? We were interested also with the couple's grown-up children who, and their support or lack of, for their parents and coming back and helping their mother, um, and you know the the elder son seems you know more concerned with the legal side of things. And um, so, what was your thinking around that as well? Yeah, I don't,
0: they were interesting because a lot of people, like my editor and other people who, who read the book quite early on, kind of really picked up on on the two children and picked up on how. Uh, yeah, how unlikable they were, or how unhelpful, unsympathetic they were. Um, And I guess, I had not really consciously planned that. It was more that I was thinking, I think for me, they're just naive, and young, Mm -hmm. and, and kind of focused on their own lives, in a way that young people inevitably are, and, and just can't quite see what's mm. happening mm. for and Anna 20, especially.
2: Yeah. The twenty somethings that got their mm. own path. Yeah. And this is sort of a bit of a, a big, Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and
0: so, you know, they come home for a few days and they they want to help and they, you know, they do their thing, a really classic thing that I think a lot of carers will recognise of people offering to help in a really unspecific way. So just let me let me know if there's anything I can do rather than just actually doing something. You know, and and One of the exhausting things about being a carer, I think, is having to do that work for somebody else, of like working out what it is that they might be able to do to to help you. Yeah. And, and, you know, someone in their early 20s isn't really going to think that that through. Um, And like, you know, the, the time she comes home and hasn't bothered changing the bedding or, you know, just hasn't really... Yeah, done that, that. thinking, but yeah, to me that doesn't make them bad people or you know unpleasant people. It just makes them young and naive,
1: and that's actually quite normal. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> in many I ways. So. And I think with both of um, both of us and our children, I mean, your children are uh, much younger than mine, but they have both had their dad um, have her, having brain injury when they were very young. So they've grown up with that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very different experience um, than Frank and Sarah who, you know, are are 20 something when their dad Mm. has the stroke. And I think that's then a very different adjusting and understanding than actually growing up with that um so I think that that's that's very interesting that that's kind of very much thrown into their lives isn't it as as it is for all of us of course when it happens there's never mm. um you know a warning or very rarely a warning of that something catastrophic is going to happen like that but I do think it, it kind of highlights the fact that their 20 something um ages have have kind of struggled to adjust to that because it's it's arrived at that time rather than Maybe with our children growing into that experience or growing up with that experience, but we were also very interested in Anna, obviously, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as uh, you know, as um, the main character, Doc's wife, uh, who becomes his carer, mm-hmm. supporter. Um, tell us a bit about your thinking behind Anna and how her role
0: develops within the story. I'm very, very fond of Anna, and she she became, for me, the main character of the book, and and she kind of took over my thinking of of what the book was about, you know, originally, the book was all going to be set in Antarctica, and it was all going to be this kind of adventurous, dramatic thing. And then once I decided, okay, Doc's going to have a stroke, and he's going to have to come back to Cambridge. And, you know, I just I had to make up a wife, and you know, and and, you, you know, you, you start with a name and you start with thinking about their history. And, and I think, quite early on, I just wanted her to be somebody very much with her own life. And, you know, and, the, and there's all this other stuff around, you know, because of the nature of the work in Antarctica, he's been away from home for months at a time every year for, for most of their, well, all of their their marriage. And so their marriage is quite Peculiar, peculiar, and lopsided, and and has kind of, in a way, has has sustained itself because of those absences rather than despite of them. Um, and so I wanted her reaction to his stroke, and her reaction to her being kind of thrust into this role of carer, to 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 not be the expected kind of selfless, heroic, sentimental version, but to be something much more complicated and and to give her space to feel resentment and annoyance and frustration and, and, and fear. Um, and yeah, I just had a lot of fun kind of developing who she was and, and writing little things, you know, little moments like, um, you know, decided that she was really big on the gardening and growing food and, and that she had this little tradition that no one else knows about, of going out and weeing on the Yes. down some trees every year <laughs> yes. as a kind of tradition. And I just thought well, that's, you know, you need little things like that in a character to, to, to make them come alive. Um, but yeah, the big thing for her is 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 that kind of shock of being thrown into that, that situation.
2: Thank you for creating that character, because for a lot of people who faced with this situation, it comes as a complete shock, as it did with myself and Julia, very much had our own lives, and fairly you know, young at the time. So having that character and having her own life and then having to kind of readjust, I think you really brought out a lot of what's real for a lot of, a lot of people, It not just drop everything and I'll look off to my husband or wife, it's doing it around everything else and mm. it's having to put your life on hold while um, the, you know, the husband or the wife is in rehabilitation.
1: And also I think for Anna, the loss, and again, it's something that we've talked about, the grieving mm-hmm. and, and her loss of her career um, and her research and then towards the end of the book, the recognition of the loss of the person that her husband was. Um, I think that that's a, a very strong theme um, but still somehow moving forward with a new reality. And that's definitely the, something that I took from the book.
0: Yeah, and I think I think one big thing for me that I picked up on in my research and, and, and you know, in my own experience was this sense of her not having a script and not really knowing what she was supposed to do or how she was supposed to do it. And, and the sense Almost a sense that because everyone you're talking to is an expert, they sort of treat you as an expert as well, and they they assume you know what you need to do, and they forget that for you this experience is brand new and shocking and and alarming, and and you know so moments like she, she's really surprised that he's going to be coming back from mm-hmm. hospital as quickly as he as he does, or she's really surprised that it's not going to be the same speech therapist who was working with him in the hospital be working with them at home or that the the speech therapy stops quite abruptly and the, the kind of constant surprises um that she's faced with that that was something that really kind of struck me from talking to people i wanted to make sure that was part of her experience
2: and i think picking up on that community care um i mean i think you kind of got that spot on as well like that it is feeling stretched and that it often isn't the same person, or it isn't for as long as you'd like it to be.
0: Yeah, I mean, that, that was something, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always cautious in in writing fiction about, you know, trying to make any kind of point or, you know, have any kind of agenda, but I was really struck and kind of upset really by seeing how stretched resources are and how thin on the ground the services have, have become. And you know, one thing that really struck me was talking to a group of speech and language therapists, and they were explaining, you know, this is how the process works. And this is how we would work with somebody. and you know, And then they kind of kept stopping themselves and saying, what we're telling you is what we were trained to do. And often it's not, quite what we're able to do. And, you know, we would love to work with somebody for much longer, or, or maybe have more of us, or, you know, and, and their frustration at not being able to do what they were able to do, because of because of the resources. And that, uh, yeah, it's important to me to include that without trying to kind of be on a soapbox about it.
1: And that's, that is the reality um, that, that I think we've, we've both mm. seen mm. as well with our husbands and you know, 13 years since my, my husband had his uh, brain hemorrhage and um, the speech and language that he's had has been amazing. Mm. But it's been weeks, you know, it's okay. the first input was six weeks, then mm. he's had a couple of other inputs after a couple of major seizures that he's had, but you know, that would that's the limit of it. Mm. And, you know, someone who survives a significant brain injury, it's not thereafter necessarily a life limiting condition. But those other services are very time limited. Mm. And, yeah. And I think it varies on area. I mean, we were actually really
2: fortunate that Paul got some good speech and language therapy for a prolonged amount of time. And I think you can tell that really with, with his speech. I mean, he just likes to talk anyway. <laughs> he's a talker, isn't he? Um, I w- what's the phrase "fluent aphasia"? I think it's probably he's partly got that. Um, but yeah, we were quite blessed actually to have that, and I was mm-hmm. really grateful that they kept with it. And I think when because they could see that he was so determined and that he kept on improving and progressing, they kind of kept it for as long as they could. And that, you know, they even admitted to me, you know, that they probably. It should have left him, but there was obviously some resources that were there, so we were able to keep going with him. So yeah, I think it really does depend on area as well as mm. that postcode mm. so, uh, three types thing. Yeah,
1: I think that's right. Um, but the, the other area that you capture in the book, which I think is just delightful, is um, the community group, the drama therapy group, Um, that's used as a a sort of as storytelling about some of the accident as well in Antarctica isn't it and it sort Mm. of reflects that Um, but also obviously the rehabilitation story and I I mean I just I just thought that was delightful and and we've spoken about that and um, certainly we've had Hector has attended groups like that and it's It's been very humorous on some occasions, you know, some of the some of the things that have happened within that. And I think particularly for me, thinking about the group of people who are so different from each other and probably none of them would ever have imagined that they would be sitting in a community hall doing that kind of thing together with the other random people that they're thrown together with. And yet what comes from it is this amazing bonding experience of those people achieving, supporting each other and, and really kind of being such an important element of, of their journey. I found that fascinating.
0: Yeah. And that became a really important part of the book for me. And I, and I, I think it kind of balanced, you know, the, 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 the section of the book, which is Anna at home with Doc, immediately after he's come home is very kind of claustrophobic and very insular and very kind of um yeah you know, it's just the two of them trapped at home essentially and so I really enjoyed kind of opening opening that out and, and getting him out into the world to, to to take part in this group. Um and it, it came from two two places really. The, the the first was that quite early on in thinking about writing about stroke, I went to see a performance by a group called Rosetta Life. Um, It was a show called Stroke Odysseys. Um, And Rosetta Life are a kind of arts and health group, organisation, and they do various kind of arts-based interventions with I guess people in in various different situations. I'm not sure but but specifically with this Um, in stroke and they had done a lot of workshops kind of dance workshops singing workshops movement workshops with stroke survivors and they put together this performance that was where half the performers were stroke survivors and half the performers were dancers professional dancers and singers um and it was just the most incredible show um you know really moving really powerful really expressive really, um, really rooted in participants themselves, clearly having had some, a lot of involvement in, in devising, mm. and shaping the show and, you know, their own voices really came across There's one particular section. I remember really clearly there's a, there was a man who he had limited mobility, I think he was using two sticks and he did a dance with this young woman, incredibly talented dancer and they kind of you know echoed off each other's movements Amazing. but some of the there was a lot of humor in like not her mocking his lack of mobility but him giving her the space to find humor in his like i, I don't know just just that really kind of self-effacing and very honest handling of, of, of you know his own mobility and the way his life had changed which which was fantastic, and and so then I did a lot of research into the group and how the performance had come come about, and they had lots of videos on their website about you know the process of, of devising and developing this this show, and so that fed very heavily into how I thought about this the, the group in the book. But Then the other thing was that I went to an aphasia uh, like self help group locally in Nottingham, um, and initially just planned to go once or maybe twice just to kind of have a bit of a chat and get a bit more of in, more insight into aphasia. But they were so welcoming and and kind of inclusive of me that I, I ended up going once a month for about a year or so until, until lockdown, actually. Um, and being part of that group and being part of the conversations in that group and talking to people with aphasia and their partners or or the people they were there with was really valuable in terms of understanding all the different ways that aphasia can can manifest, you know, completely undid any notion I had that they were like, oh, there there are three types of aphasia. Mm -hmm. You know, there are millions of types of aphasia because there are millions of people with it, but also the different ways people reacted to that, the different strategies people developed, um, the different ways, relatives did or didn't cope with it. Um, but also, very quickly gathered a sense of how much I was able to form relationships with people who couldn't really speak to mm. me, you know, and, and how much I kind of understood of who that person was. Mm. And, and also just how much laughter was in, was in that room. Mm. It was really striking mm. and really valuable. Just to know it sounds ridiculous but you know people in difficult situations are still capable of enjoying themselves Mm -hmm. and having fun and enjoying each other's company and laughing at each other Mm -hmm. and you know and, and there's something i've come across a lot when researching particular things for for fiction is somebody who's in a particular situation so a stroke survivor or in the case for another book I wrote, you know, somebody who is homeless or has addiction issues, they don't spend all of their time thinking about that thing. Mm. That thing is the kind of the framework of their life now. And what they're thinking about moment by moment is all the other stuff. And I think it's, it's really easy to make the mistake that oh, because somebody's had a stroke, they're gonna spend all their time thinking and talking about stroke. You know, they're not they're gonna Wonder what they're having for dinner and they watch telly and you know get annoyed about stuff um and being part of that group really kind of hit that home for me and so it was really important for me to include that in, in in the book i think by the time i went to that group i'd already included that in the story and so i had my characters already so i wasn't copying the people i met and putting them in the book but but i was really drawing on on their kind of Variety mm.
2: and, and, and community and camaraderie. Definitely I guess, community. Yeah, You can't make yeah. up until you really see it.
0: Yeah, and it was really striking. And like I did kind of you know, Once lockdown hit, I did kind of miss being in the group. And I think it's that thing you said. You know that that thing of different people being thrown together. I think it's increasingly unusual in. I don't in my life. I don't know about other people, but it, it's. I kind of miss situations where you do get thrown together with a bunch of random people you wouldn't otherwise have met and you're together trying to achieve something or or working towards something, or or you just have to keep going back to that setting on a regular basis, I think something really valuable about doing that.
2: Mm. Mm. Really valuable and humbling as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, And having to compromise and adapt and listen and yeah, just having to be outside your own bubble. I mean, draw eye on assuming what other people think. But.
1: Yeah. And I think also creating that shared sense of a safe space where all of those differences and difficulties and humour and backgrounds and where all of that can interplay in a safe space. Mm-hmm.
2: Completely be yourself yes. rather than in a conversation with friends or whatever, where you're trying to keep up with what all the friends are saying and how they are, and trying to, I don't know, be on that kind of vibe. It's it's kind of well, embracing, I suppose, the condition.
0: Yeah, and I guess I can imagine that for pe- the people who were going to that group, that was part of the value of the group was was being in, uh, yeah, around a table with other people in not the same situation, but similar situations, and and kind of not having to explain themselves, and not having to make adjustments, but just to kind of be there. And it, and it was really well facilitated. You know, there were these kind of there was quite a structure and a routine to the meetings, um, and lots of kind of explanation and clarification, but that, that kind of gave people space to to talk and to listen and I mean it was fairly chaotic at times and you know lots of people shouting over other people but, but yeah they, 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 they got there and I think it, yeah that safe space being created and established was, was obviously really important.
1: And I'm always um, reminded of that skill in facilitators of communication in that way Someone that, I I feel I'm a good communicator, but actually I couldn't facilitate a room in that way, I don't think, Mm -hmm. without lots of training. Challenging. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, to just be able to give everyone that space and including you there as well, Mm -hmm. to allow all of those interactions to take place. I think it's it's hugely skilled. And, And although that chaos was part of it, allowing that chaos to happen. And yet still to have those amazing outcomes, I think it's, it's a very skilled role that's often undervalued. Yeah. Um, and I think in the book, going back to to lean full stand, the way that the facilitator and mirror actually um, ends up with a, a fabulous outcome for everyone there. Um, and I think, I mean, I guess one of the things that's, that's a bit sad about that is, you know, it comes to an end and it, Kind of links back to what we were saying about community that you know with some of these things it was a funded piece of work and it mm-hmm. went on for six months, which is amazing. Um, but it was going to come to an end as mm-hmm. well. So I think that that idea of what happens next And I think that was one of the things that we were thinking about as well with the book is where where do you see that um, that the, the, the lives of the characters would go next?
0: Yeah, that's always a good <laughs> question. Really, don't know because I think there's a lot that is quite live by the time the book finishes. That kind of crisis moment passes, mm. and then you know he takes part in this group and he makes connections with the other people mm. in the group, and that's that's really new for him. Mm. I think to kind of be a bit more vulnerable and a bit more open, mm-hmm. and that kind of offers up the possibility of a next. Mm. But I think, um, yeah, for me, it's really open what that next might be. And it, 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 it might be that he continues to develop and improve his social skills. And, you know, maybe his mobility and his speech continues to gradually improve, or it doesn't. Maybe the children get a bit more savvy and spend more time back at home helping. Maybe Anna realises, you know, the, the marriage is a curious one. Maybe Anna realises that, that she doesn't want to spend the rest of her life with him and, and some other situation emerges. I don't know. I think, I think I wanted, I just wanted to get them to a point where there was going to be a next and then leave it up to the reader.
1: And I think leaving it open like that leaves our listeners able to resonate with the book as well, which I would certainly highly recommend mm, because I that's... think that Um, people who are listening to this podcast and in a similar situation will have that whole range of experiences of um, being still together or relationships having not survived or children having become more involved or not more involved or you know all of and all of those things in between so Mm -hmm. yeah I think
2: it throws up so many themes I think that really resonate with with anybody who's had someone with a a brain injury to look at look after or to um you know within their family because it impacts everybody. as Mm. as we know that's one of the reasons we set up the podcast because it isn't just that one person it is a whole community of people and it it takes that community to build them up again a lot of the time and that's why community is
1: so important I'd also love to recommend people to listen to the audiobook because actually I listened to the audiobook first before I read the right. um, read the physical copy. And I thought it was a wonderful way to bring aphasia to life um, in lots of different ways and within the group setting. And I wanted to ask you, how do you choose the person that reads an audiobook or do you?
0: Uh no i don't <laughs> it's one of those things it's like book covers you know the you you in theory you get some input but actually you know when it comes to something like an actor for an audiobook you know i'm, I'm not i'm not a director I'm, I'm not an expert um and you know for me listening to an audio version of my own book is like listening to a recording for your own voice it's kind of more or less unbearable so i i i generally don't um listen to the audiobooks. I kind of just wait for other people to tell me how they've worked out. But I think with this book in particular, yeah, I I, I have heard that the choice of actor was, was a good one and that the, the reading is a really good one. Um, and I think it, it probably was a really challenging, especially in that last section with the, with the, the group and all those different forms of aphasia, kind of representing that um, in a reading must have been a real challenge. Sounds well, like, I think he, he did, like it it well. it did it very well, did it very well.
1: Yes. And it, it, it was very entertaining in some of the, the humorous bits with the different, right. different expressions of aphasia, I found it really, really entertaining and very well read. That's so time. I, That's I recommend time. the audio book to you, John. Okay,
0: I'll
2: have a listen. So, John, what is next? What What are you in the process of writing at the moment? Uh,
0: um, Several different things, I think. I I mean, I'm always, um, yeah, there's always a lot of floundering around. It's not a, a efficient or well-regulated system. You know, I have some writer friends who kind of consistently write a book a year or they've got the next three planned out. And I'm not really Mm -hmm. like that. It's lots of kind of bits and pieces until something kind of settles down. But I am I am working on a novel um, and I think it is going to have something to do with dementia. Um, Although it's mainly a crime novel or it's it's a novel about two criminals, but not really a crime novel. but there's dementia in there somewhere. So I'm still interested in, in, in brains and, and different experiences of the world. Um, but I'm also writing lots of short stories and, and kind of dabbling in, in script writing as well. So I think there's, there's all sorts going on. Yeah, you have to watch That's this space. Exciting. It
2: does sound really
1: exciting. Yeah, watch the space, absolutely. Maybe we'll have to pop up and join your creative writing course here at Nottingham. <laughs> it sounds wonderful. It does. I'd love to do something students, like
2: that. Yeah, I'm blessed nice to have you.
1: Yeah, I can't not ask you about Luke Adebayo because he has a good Nigerian name. Mm. With uh, my husband being Nigerian, I wanted to to just ask you about that character, and I was I was intrigued about the the kind of ignorance and and racism really. That um, that Robert Doc expresses mm-hmm. um, in the book, and also some of the um, challenges around gender and his his views on women, mm-hmm. women pilots, and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, women in the scientific world, and I yes, I wondered if that was sort of born out of any experience of
0: academia or. Um, I mean, yeah. no, he's certainly not based on anyone in particular, um, Robert. Um, but he is, yeah, I was trying to capture a lot of things in him about some men of his generation. Um, and, you know, that very cl- classic way in which he would, he is somebody who would say, I don't have a racist bone in my body. Yeah. You know, that cl- classic kind of like, they're kind of taking offense at the very idea that they might have. That might be a racist and this sort of being rather than doing racism is, is kind of intriguing. Um, but yeah, I kind of knew as soon as I started writing him and, and kind of exploring who he was and the time he spent in Antarctica and his his ideas about work. I kind of knew he'd be the sort of person who, you know, would ask pointed questions about somebody's name and was, when they say, where are you from, they would then say, where are you really from, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, so in order to see him doing that, I, I, I brought Luke in. Um, but I also, I wanted, again, I wanted Luke to be interesting in his own right and, and kind of, you know, so he's he's his background is, you know, he was a, a scientist, a young science student at Cambridge and, you know, has come to Antarctica, but is kind of less excited about it than, than other people and, and you know some people who go to Antarctica kinda of get obsessed with it and, 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 and want to kind of go there over and over again and he's much much more ambiguous about it. Um but then the kind of complication of that he's the one later on, he's the one that comes comes back mm. to find out how um how Doc's mm. getting on and, and mm. the kind of you know, there's a, there's a kind of grudging respect. In, in their relationship. There's been a bit of work on developing a screen adaptation of the book. And Luke yeah. is definitely definitely somebody who, who is going to be more prominent mm. in any, any mm. script that comes around. Because he's, yeah, I think he's... When you write a novel, there's always a few regrets about things that you didn't quite finish or didn't quite pin mm. down and I, and I feel like there's more much more of Luke's story mm. and Luke's experience that that's ready to kind of come to the surface and and certainly in the in the recovery phase and Luke's ongoing relationship with Doc I think there's a lot more mm. to explore.
2: I it's, like that. I like I do you know what I did think it lent itself to uh, dramatization, definitely, when I was reading it. Um,
1: Another watch this space. Yeah. How exciting.
2: But I did really like the fact that he kept in contact and came to see him, and mm. he didn't have to, really. No. But, yeah, I thought that was a really nice touch. And, yeah, it did make me more intrigued about Luke and kind of developing that character
1: as well a bit mm. further there are other complications aren't there in terms of that relationship and and the accident that happened mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I think that's uh that's obviously something that will I'm sure be touched upon in the in the screen version too mm-hmm. which we'll look forward to exciting
2: yeah. <laughs> fingers crossed yeah
1: well thank you so much for having us John it's it's been an absolute pleasure to be here yeah, today it's hasn't so it?
2: interesting and yeah there's so many other things we probably could get into but yeah, really appreciate you taking the time, and um, I know that yeah, I will say it, but there's going to be so much benefit in there for our listeners, and I would definitely recommend it's uh, Lean Full Stand, having a read of that, whether, you know, whether you have experience of a brain injury or not,
1: because it is just a brilliant book. And we'll put information in the show notes about that, mm-hmm. won't we? So Absolutely. Keep spreading the word. Thank you, John.
0: Thank you. you
2: Thank you so much for listening. While you're here, I do have a bit of a favor. Please take a couple of minutes to rate and review On A Good Day on your podcast platform. It'll really help us to grow the podcast and it to become more visible to those who may need it in their lives. Also, if you're not already, follow us on Instagram, onagood.day, Twitter, on a good underscore day, and come join our Facebook group as well. We're growing a bit of community there, which is really exciting. Um, Share this episode with friends and family. I just loved speaking to John and what he had to say was just incredible. And the book is brilliant as well. Uh, So for now, have a very good day.